That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. Thank you for being here. I'm Ken Levine, your podcast host. And I got a good show on hand for you today. You know, hosts always say that. Just once, wouldn't you love to tune in and have a host say, hey, should have watched last night because I had great guests. Last night was terrific. Today, eh, not so much. But anyway, I do have a really good show for you. Today, I have Robin Schiff. Robin Schiff is a writer who I have known and worked with for years. Robin, along with David Isaacs and I, co-created Almost Perfect, the show that ran on CBS in the mid-90s for two years. That I'm still bitter is not still on the air. But be that as it may, Robin is probably best known for writing Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion. We'll talk about Romy and Michelle. Also, Robin has some great advice for young writers trying to break into the industry. It really is a good show this week. Stick around. Hollywood and the Vine. But before we get to Robin, a word about Blue Apron. Now, it is so hard to eat healthy these days, especially if, like me, you tend to eat out from time to time. Yeah, the food is very tasty, but God knows what they put in it to make it tasty. If you want to eat healthy, the best way to do it is to eat at home. And if you want to eat healthy at home, the best way to do it is through Blue Apron. Now, Blue Apron is this online service. You order online and then fresh ingredients for a home-cooked meal come right to your door. You follow the recipe and within an hour, you have a home-cooked meal that is not only delicious, but also healthy. I want you to try it for free. Here's all you got to do. Just go to blueapron.com slash Hollywood. That's right. Just blueapron.com and then type in slash Hollywood and we will send you three free meals and free shipping on all three. Very easy. Believe me, you're going to try this. You are going to be sold. Blueapron.com slash Hollywood. Eat healthy at home tonight. Well, first of all, it is the 20th anniversary of Romy and Michelle. Hard to believe uh, that movie has become so iconic. But Romy and Michelle go back before that. Talk a little bit about the actual origin of Romy and Michelle. Well, I'd written a play called Ladies' Room that took place in a woman's bathroom at a pickup bar. And the main characters all worked at an advertising agency together, and then they went to happy hour. And I, for whatever reason, decided I wanted it to be 
one scene, so no blackouts. So in order to accommodate that, I had to have the main characters be able to exit, go into the bar, and then come back a little while later and be able to say, this just happened. So I had to create filler, and Romy and Michelle were part of the filler. (laughs) Now, were they modeled after anybody? At the time, and this was, the first production was... Well, it's interesting because it was in 80, 87. So everything wow. is, I can't do math, but I <laughs> so would say how the, many years. So this is the 30th anniversary of Romeo and Michelle. Of Romeo and Michelle, exactly. I knew I wanted it to be happy hour. So you wanted somebody who would go to happy hour. And there used to be this bar on Sunset Boulevard called Nikki Blair's. I don't know if you remember Nikki Blair's. I do. But you would drive by it and there was a line out the door. It was a club. And all the girls would be wearing black something. And they all looked, there would be best friends and they would all look alike. So when I first conceived Romeo and Michelle, they were conceived after those girls waiting to go into Nikki Blair's. Okay. And the play ran for a long period of time. And I imagine there was some changing in the cast. Who are some of the people, do you remember, who played Romy and Michelle back then? Yeah, Lisa Kudrow. (laughs) Okay. Lisa, uh, she played it in every production. Mm -hmm. And then a woman named Christy Mellor played Romy. And they were really different. You know, one of the things that I've been thinking about, we've got this musical coming up, is and I'd forgotten about this, how hard it was for me to psychologically evolve the characters from the play to the movie, because in the play, they just, I made them as disgusting as possible. (laughs) They were saying disgusting things in front of the other people. They were, you know, just supposed to be these small characters, and then they took on a life of their own. From the play came a television pilot, which is where you and I first met when uh, those characters got put into a pilot for, I guess, NBC, I think. Yeah. But NBC didn't want them to be the stars of the pilot, so you had to make them the side characters and then create a whole series around them, right? Yeah. Well, they were sort of the stars, but they wanted a point-of-view character, you know, Mm -hmm. the sort of straight man. I mean, I think they were right to have a straight man. It just was the show itself... What I was saying a minute ago was how I had to evolve the characters from being these one-dimensional characters to people who had some pain in their background so that you could tell that story. And that's happening again as I am evolving it from the movie to the play. And it's it, every time it's kind of stressful because you feel like, oh, my God, it worked in the other incarnation. I just want to copy that. Mm-hmm. But you really have to reconceive it. So how did the movie come about? The movie came about because... The play ladies' room used to be submitted as a writing sample, and um, these two executives at Disney named Gay Hirsch and Alex Schwartz, both women, had read ladies' room as a writing sample, and they fell in love with the two characters, and they asked to meet with me, and they said they thought it could be a female Wayne's world. So I'm like, well, I don't know how to do that, of course. So I started thinking, Romy and Michelle go to Japan. Romy and Michelle go to college, which is even stranger than them going to Japan. 
And then finally, I was driving one day, and it just popped into my head that they get invited to their high school reunion. And it's not until they're filling out the questionnaire that they realize they haven't amounted to anything. Mm. And that, it made me laugh out loud in my car. That whole idea, plus it was very relatable, which I wasn't particularly thinking of at that moment, but it seemed funny to be living this life and think you're happy and then you realize you're not. Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of unique in the sense that most movies, the way they go through development is an original writer will come on and then a director will come on and hire his writers and then other writers will rewrite their writers. And so by the time the movie finally hits the screen, there are 17 writers who have been attached. But this movie is pretty much all you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, that's, I was that's fired off it for a year. And this guy rewrote it, and um, all the people who had said that they were going to do it, like Lisa Kudrow and Janine Garofalo, they all hated the script. They had to go back to my script. Uh Um, But essentially, other than some fantastic jokes written by some friends of mine, um, (laughs) because, you know, I always use the resources that I have. Yes, I wrote everything else. Yeah. But I was in the Groundlings comedy group, so I know some people who were going to Help me out for free. Yeah, well, that's always good. It's, yeah. it's a reason why you get into the ground. Yeah. Either that or to get on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> exactly, but I didn't get on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> okay, so now the musical. And one thing that I've learned about writing musicals, because I've been involved in one, and years ago I thought, well, it'd be really fun to just, you know, dash off the book of a musical. <laughs> These things take years and years. How long have you been working on, on Romy and Michelle's The Musical? Twelve years. Wow. Twelve years. We, this is our third set of composers, as I like to say it, the third and last. Uh-huh. But when we met them, she was pregnant and her kid's now eight years old. <laughs> <laughs> and we had our first set of composers were the guys, one of them co, uh, co-wrote Time After Time, and they um, produced the Cindy, Cindy Lauper's Time yeah. After Time, yeah, right. as opposed to the old standard. Right. Yeah. I didn't even know about the old standard. Ken. I'll sing it for you later. All right. Yeah. I'll, okay. Why not? Na- why not now? <laughs> time after time. No. <laughs> <laughs> that was really funny. He's, he's Thank blushing you. now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to just save it for my concert. Yeah, yeah. Really. Okay. But yeah, we've been working on it a long time. And, you know, here I'd written this movie and I'm like, this is going to be so easy. I'll just slap it down and call it a day. And it's just much more complicated than that. Things that you can get away with in a movie, you can't get away with in in a musical or even in a stage play and other things. Like what? What do you mean by that? Well, in a movie, you're telling stories with faces and pictures. In a stage play, you're telling the story much more with words. Mm -hmm. You're still telling it with behavior, but, you know, we've got dancing in it. You know, it's just... It's just a different way of telling stories. One of the things that feedback that we kept getting in the musical was that it really took off at the second song, which is called 10 Years. And it's the song about her realizing that she's basically lost a decade and and hasn't really realized it. But the first number wasn't working. 
And I guess you really need a Sacco first number, don't you? And you also need like that big, what do they call it? The 11 o'clock song, just that big emotional song that brings down the house. Yeah, we got all that. Oh, okay. (laughs) And I guess the other problem, too, is, well, how much book do you need to write and how much music? You know, the other thing I remember about doing the musical is that people, even if they were having an intimate conversation, were basically shouting right? (laughs) so that you could hear them in the back row of the Pantages. Which yeah, is kind of different. It it is different. It's obviously it's more presentational. What I was starting to say was that they felt the musical took off in the second song, but then in the opening they didn't get who the characters were. And they didn't fall in love with the characters. So then we really had to rethink how are we gonna begin the show if they're not liking the characters and yet keep what's makes them special and unique and who they are. And so that's been a a challenge. But I think for the first time in 12 years, we have a conception, at least for the opening, that I think is going to work. Yay. Yes, Well, that's interesting. So in other words, you are conceiving this, assuming that the audience doesn't know who Romy and Michelle are, as opposed to those who do who are going to just see them and like immediately be thrilled that there's Romy and Michelle for all of the other people, you know, like New York Times critics and stuff. You want to make sure that you introduce them to Romy and Michelle. Exactly. And, you know, you hope that a lot more people will see it over time than even saw the movie. But the idea is that it'll be understandable to people who haven't seen it. There was this huge screening of the movie by Huge. It was at one of those old picture palaces in downtown LA, those gorgeous old buildings. Uh And there were a thousand people and they did a whole, everybody dressed up in costumes. And and they never do that for volunteers. No. Or mannequin too. Is it the... 20-year reunion of Mannequin 2? No, I think that's coming up in a year (laughs) or two. (laughs) But it's the 33rd anniversary of Volunteers. Wow. Somehow we missed. Or maybe they had it and and we just weren't invited. Yeah, Yeah, it was great. Like, you know, everybody dressed up like Thai peasants and... It sounds hilarious. Well, this, they had a photo booth and people dressed up in period clothes. But the thing that shocked me was how young this crowd was. Mm -hmm. Half of them weren't even born when that movie came out or or they were little. So that's the thing that's been amazing to me is seeing the staying power that the movie has. But if you look at it, we took out the fucks. We basically took out the fucks. So Uh rather than saying fuck off, she says piss off. And this is Heather Mooney played by Janine Garofalo. It took you 12 years to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It took us 12 years to figure out you could say something else. No, because what we didn't realize when the movie first came out was how appealing it was going to be to young kids. Mm -hmm. So if I'd known that, I wouldn't have put the fucks in to begin with because that made it R-rated. Sure. So now that we're doing the musical, we have an opportunity to make it a little more still edgy, but more accessible to younger kids and people who haven't seen it before. Now, when I was teaching a class at USC in like a survey of comedy. And I showed Romy and Michelle. And the kids loved it, but there were certain things that they didn't get, like the whole Mary Rhoda run, which at the time, of course, everybody knew who Mary and Rhoda were from the Mary Tyler Moore show. But now it's just too far in the past for those kids. So did you have to change some of those things too? Or did you figure, nah, it was a big It was a big discussion. Mm -hmm. as to whether or not we should take it out. And ultimately, 
everything doesn't have to be for one age of person to get. Mm -hmm. You know, when the movie came out, a lot of those people were in their 30s and 40s when the movie came out, so they'd be the right age to know who Mary and Rhoda are. But one of my favorite little Romy and Michelle stories is I was once in line to um, pay for something in a store and these two girls were standing behind me and I overhear them talking and one says, do you think you're the Mary or the Rhoda? And the other girl goes, I think I'm the Mary. And then there's a pause and they go, who are Mary and Rhoda? (laughs) And that was basically it. But the point being that you get it. You don't Mm -hmm. have to know literally who Mary and Rhoda are. Are all you know is one's the lead and the prettier one, and the other one's the sidekick Jewish one. So, when you've done draft after draft, have you had workshops? Have you had audience previews? And you're you're going to have a full production of it, which we'll talk about in a few minutes in Seattle in June. Are you going to use that to do an awful lot of rewriting, especially you know when you're doing jokes? It's helpful to have an audience to get oh, yeah. some kind of feedback. Yeah, We've had workshops. Again, this is over years. We've probably had 29-hour readings, which doesn't mean it takes place over 29 hours. It just means the yeah, actors... Cut it down a little bit. The yeah. actors rehearse over, you <laughs> oh, know, I see. so it can be three hours a day or, right. or whatever. Oh, and I had a play that was in previews, and I had a lot of elderly audiences. They sat and enjoyed the play, but... Nothing. They're like, no, like crickets. And uh, one night, it was like a Saturday night, so we had a younger audience. So all of a sudden, things were getting really good laughs. And I said to the cast, the good news is I heard which jokes worked, and the bad news is I heard which ones didn't. (laughs) (laughs) And you're going to get a whole slew of new jokes tomorrow. So look out for that (laughs) when you get to Seattle. Well, there's, there's always rewriting and we have a longer rehearsal period and we have previews. So we're really going to have an opportunity to write stuff, but I'm constantly rewriting. We also restructured it in a way that I like Mm -hmm. better than the movie. I'm not saying I like it better than the movie. I think it's fits this form better better structure than the movie. Uh I could give some examples, but you'd have to know the movie. So I'm not going to give an example. Okay. Well, you come from a TV background too, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And to me, that is like just a great resource for dealing with rewrites because you're used to it. You're used to seeing run-throughs and going back and making changes. I know a lot of times playwrights will take a year to write their play and when they get it up and and there's an audience and the whole scene doesn't work, they're used to taking a month and a half to do the scene. They can't just go back to the hotel room and fix it that night. But having the television background, it's what you're used to. It is. And, and one of the producers of Romeo and Michelle is Barry Kemp, who created Coach and New Heart, started out on Taxi. So I've got that schlepper to work with <laughs> if I get stuck on something. And he's been invaluable. And, you know, I'm working very closely with the composers. We're all unit now. So the fun parts are the songs, really. Uh-huh. But because I'm working really closely, I feel like I'm getting to have some of that fun. Mm-hmm. But the book is really serving the music. Right. But likewise, the composers have to be flexible and change as well because you'll, you'll, you'll go to Seattle. You know, there's all those great stories about funny thing happened on the yeah. way to the forum and they said to Sondheim, uh, we need some song to say that there's a comedy tonight. And 
you know, boom, comedy you know, writes comedy tonight overnight and, you know, it becomes a big hit and it turns things around. So, yeah, it's great. I think it's the perfect venue for Romy and Michelle. It feels because it's so innately theatrical, because so much of it is about costumes. And even in the movie, the music was really important. It felt like it could lend itself to the theater. And we'll see if the audiences agree. I hope so. And how did you find your Romy and Michelle and who are your Romy and Michelle? Nobody you would have ever heard of. Um, <laughs> one of them is named Stephanie Renee Wall, and she's done a lot of theater in L.A. It's my sister-in-law. Yeah, yeah. there you go, <laughs> Stephanie <laughs> Renee Wall. And then the other one is named Courtney Wolfson, and we just cast her in New York. Uh-huh. So she's our third Romy. Uh-huh. Um, there's actually been far more. Because it's taken so long that people have dropped out, you mean? Yeah, we had one girl who was fantastic who's like 50 years old now. <laughs> I mean, as it was, she was pushing it, you know, to play 27 and, and 17. But, yeah, we've, you know, we've had to move on and, and have a lot of different Romy's and Michelle's and guest cast and everything. I mean, not guest cast, the secondary characters. Now, were the Romy and Michelle's basically trying to do what Lisa Kudrow and Mira Sorvino were doing in the movie. So, in other words, were they kind of like imitating that Romy and Michelle? Or were they trying to bring something else to it, whatever they They, have to bring? Yeah, well, Lisa had played it in the play, but then it changed when Mira was doing it. And at first, it was really an adjustment for me, because Mira was playing it way differently than the girl played it in Mm -hmm. the play. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I needed to. The, mm-hmm. the original play was pretty broad. Then when they wanted to make it into a movie, the first thing I said was I wanted Lisa Kudrow and Christy Mellor to play the parts. And they were like, sure, you know, doing the jerk off hand motion. Mm-hmm. And by the time the movie it w- it was in development for five years, by the time it was they were thinking of making it, uh, Lisa Kudrow was on Friends. And so I think her fame was a big reason the movie got made. Because you can imagine on the page, it wasn't a traditional script. Like, jokes were stuff like, okay. Mm-hmm. You know? Very character-based. Very character-based. And so the studio read it. That's why I think they fired me for a year. The studio read it, and they were like, this isn't funny. There's no jokes in here. Mm-hmm. And they're not. So... What about those characters do you think has struck such a chord in people? As you said, you know, even younger generations are discovering and and loving Romy and Michelle. What is it about those two girls, that relationship that, for whatever reason, people have really sparked to? I think that it's the friendship. I think people recognize themselves or have that fantasy of having that friend where everything you did with them would be fun. I think the other theme that really resonates is the idea of being yourself and not worrying so much about what other people think and that maybe you were fine all along. And I think that those two things, you know, there's a huge gay following. And there's, you know, even if you looked at the audience who was there, there were characters. There were people who seemed like they were the either the flamboyant or the other. Mm-hmm. You can't really... Recognizable characters. Yeah. 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 That, yeah. That, that people could identify with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, I look at Broad City today and Alana and Abby are kind of like the modern but not as well-crafted versions of Romy and Michelle. Well, it is another female friendship thing. And I think that that's why it's 
one of the reasons why it's so successful. It was if it was just filthy without the friendship, I don't know if people would watch Broad City. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean that seems like an obvious statement, but you know, you'd kind of have to ask audience members. But I feel like it's the friendship and the message about being yourself, and I think it's funny. It is funny, yeah. You know. Yeah, it, I like it is that. Funny. I like that Romy and Michelle are mean to people that they're not the bottom of the barrel because that was what I related to. I mean, I mm-hmm. wasn't like Romy and Michelle, but I was not the bottom of the barrel, nor was I. I was popular, but I wasn't in with the like cheerleader. You weren't the prom queen, and no. you didn't sit at the uh, the special table in the lunchroom. No, I was being too flamboyant to sit. Uh huh. <laughs> When I went to Pal- I went to Pacific Palisades High, and at the time, there were three blacks at the school, Vicki and Christy Williams and Daryl Goines, and everything else was, they were all Gentiles, mm-hmm. and it was 6% Jews, and I was one of the 6% Jews, so I never felt like I fit in, even though I had a lot going for me. I was more with the drama people, or I had friends in all different groups. But I wasn't part of that group, nor did I really want to be like them. But I still felt like rejected, even though they never really rejected me. They just didn't pay attention to me. Mm -hmm. So I wanted Romy and Michelle to be kind of like that. Let's talk a little bit about your comedy background. We mentioned briefly that you went to the Groundlings, which is an improv group, and lots of people from Saturday Night Live have come out of the Groundlings. Will Ferrell, Lisa Kudrow, Kudrow. Kristen Wiig, Melissa McCarthy, Maya Rudolph, you know, millions of them. Yeah. Phil Hartman, John Lovitz, Lorraine Newman. Yeah. And Pee Wee Herman came out of there, yes. too. Yeah. So that's quite a an excellent training ground It was amazing. Before that, I'd been writing movies. I had had nothing produced, but I was making a living. You know, at the time, you could pitch movies, and right. there were TV movies. And, you know, so I was making a living, but I was very isolated. So I thought, well, I want to get out of the house. It was never, I want to be in the Groundlings comedy group. I just didn't see that as a possibility. And then um, when I got my first laugh, I felt like... I must have more laughter <laughs> as soon as possible. <laughs> you know, it was like I've seen that, saw a quote once that a heroin addict, the first time they shot heroin, they're like, I am home. And I, when I got my first laugh, I felt like I am home. These are my people. So I was in the sending company for a year. I was in the main company for two and a half years. And then I figured out I was a comedy writer. So why did you decide you wanted to be a writer as opposed to a performer? I lost my, I want to say I lost my courage. Mm. I went to UCLA. I'd acted in junior high and high school, and I went to UCLA. And I think I felt intimidated because it was like, I thought everybody was going to be these like, I don't know, acting maniacs or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that is. <laughs> I was just picturing walking dead with actors. <laughs> <laughs> where, where they're all dead, but they're posing. Yeah, yeah. they all look terrible, exactly. but they're posing. Exactly. And the Groundlings was really deep into it. Mm-hmm. Now it's always been a problem. We'll kind of segue into this now. The idea of a woman being a comedy writer in basically an old boys club. Talk a little bit about the challenges of that, of being in a room, of being one of the or only women in a room of neurotic male comedy writers. Well, the funny thing is that I'm in 
the room with one of my mentors and friends and partner, Ken Levine. And I actually had, especially early in my career, amazing experiences with men because I wasn't working for them. I was working with them. Mm -hmm. And I had two experiences, one with you and your partner, David Isaacs, where you had all of this experience and you came in and were just supportive. You came in on that Romy and Michelle pilot where they weren't called Romy and Michelle. And these guys were so experienced. I was very intimidated that they were coming in and then everything was in service of me and my idea. They were so kind and so funny. And then when I got my deal at Paramount, I'm like, I'm going to entrap those guys into doing a series with me. (laughs) So I came up with something, but you guys treated me as a partner from the very beginning at the same time that you were educating me. And I don't think there's anything better in life than to be learning and contributing at the same time. Another one of my big mentors was Barry Kemp, um, who I've already mentioned, and same thing. So I've been in rooms where I've been kind of ignored or dismissed. It has as much to do with ageism as sexism. Mm. Mm -hmm. But I just, I can't really think of a lot of examples from my own life. There's a general reluctance to hire women writers in general. And I think that later in life, that's been more of a problem for me than it was early on in my career. Mm-hmm. And and then you have idiots like Adam Carolla who say that women aren't funny. That, that genius. <laughs> you know yeah. what? Adam Carolla and the guys, Carolla... Mm-hmm. Um, and the guys who listen to him, I don't think they're funny. So the truth of the matter is, I'm just going to go around being funny, and that'll that'll be that. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of very funny women, a lot of women who are quite funnier than than men, and and I've always felt, especially if you're doing a show like the show that we did, almost perfect. I'll pause for a minute as everyone can applaud, uh, starring <laughs> Nancy Travis. But it was a show about. A woman. So it like only made sense if we were going to really mine the reality of that character to fill the room with women writers. You know, not that David and I weren't like incredibly perceptive and never pitched anything that a woman wouldn't say. Yes, of course not. Yeah. <laughs> but others would. But others would. But, you know, it, it just it just sort of makes sense in that regard to to use women. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I was just flashing back to the pilot week of Almost Perfect, and you guys invited in. It was like Peter Casey and Dave Hackle and Fief Sutton, and I'm trying to think. It was like a room full of guys, and I was the only woman in there, and they'd all written together, and they'd all written on Cheers and Frasier, and I was so intimidated, and it was my show. You know, uh-huh. <laughs> Ken and David's in my show, and I'm sitting there feeling afraid to speak up. And then Fief was such a doll, he kept leaning over to me and going, is that okay with you? But kind mm. of like as a bit, kind of right. like as a joke, right. but it really put me at ease. But there's been that kind of intimidation, but I probably would have been just in, as intimidated by females who mm-hmm. have that kind of cachet. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I've always been kind of a little bit of a one of the boys type of a yeah, woman. Yeah, you really do. I mean, you just you fit in a room. You don't have thin skin, and you know it's always been a pleasure being in a room with you. Thank you. And you come up with really good stuff, so that that always helps too. You know, I can imagine. Well, I grew up in a household that was perfect preparation for a writer's room, unwittingly. 
because our family, my uncle and my cousin were very funny and my father thought he was funny, uh-huh. but everybody would wait for somebody to say something stupid and the rest of the meal was <laughs> hammering that person. If we dropped it for a second, it would there would be a callback. Everybody would make fun of them. So you know you're in a writer's room, and you know it's you can get mocked. You can say something, and it just lays there. And you really do have to have a thick skin, and it has to be less about you and more about the product, so that you can be happy no matter who pitches stuff. Mm-hmm. And our family is sort of the same way. With my kids growing up, you know, my feeling is if you're going to be funny and you're going to be taking shots at people, you got to be able to take it yourself. Right. And so there was kind of this unspoken rule that at one point or another, anyone in the family could be the target. So you you do kind of learn to be able to take it as well. And in well a room, it's a big stress job. relief anyway. You know, yeah. you it's it's almost better if you pitch something and nobody says something. It's worse than if people make fun of you. Because mm-hmm. if they don't mm-hmm. say anything, then they're like, and they don't like you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so what advice would you give? It's the standard question that you have to ask writers, because we do have a lot of writers, writer wannabes, that want to know how you break in. So what are some of the tips, some of the advice that that you might give? Write and write and write. I don't know anybody that's gotten a job from one spec. And the odds are if you've only written one um, or written a spec pilot or something, you're still not good enough. So keep writing and writing and writing. If you're a comedy writer, take a class at the Groundlings or UCB or somewhere. It's really going to help you get in touch with your own comic sensibility and seek out like-minded individuals. Through the course, take a class. You know, at the Groundlings, I met my like-minded individuals and people that you respect who you can give your work to. The part that you can't tell anybody how to do is how do you get your age and how do you get your first mm-hmm. job. Mm-hmm. But honestly, I really genuinely believe that if you're talented and you've written a decent piece of material, it will find its way where it needs to go. So talking about Barry Kemp again, before he got his job on taxi, he was selling insurance in Phoenix. Mm. So he kept writing spec scripts and sending them to Los Angeles and he didn't you know, get a job. He had to write 16 spec scripts. Yeah. And then he finally got a job and wasn't even living in L.A. Mm-hmm. You know, and I remember, too, like when we were doing Almost Perfect and when I was show running other shows, that you get a stack of scripts from agents. And it's like the Sorcerer's Apprentice. You know, you read five and ten more come right. in. You read script after script after script and you find one that you like and then you find another that you like and you have that stack and then you call back those agents and they're going, oh, they met on Friends. Oh, they're going to this show or they're going to that show. It's like, you know, the good scripts are recognized by everybody all around town. Yeah. So you just have to keep at it. Yeah, you do. Or, you know, take an extension class. There's just people who can help you. You know, another thing. Oh, here's a couple other tips. One tip is if you're a TV writer mm-hmm. and you love a show... Write a letter to the supervising producer. Ignore the executive producers. They've got too much stuff coming at them and they're not going to pay attention to you. Write down actual episodes that you love that this person wrote and write them a fan letter. Mm. And say, I would love to pick your brain and get some coffee. 
No one asks that guy their opinion, that man or woman, their opinion, and they'll be only too happy to meet with you and may help you. Another thing to look at is college affiliations. You know, you've got to have the goods. If you don't have the goods, all that other stuff is useless. Yeah, sure. You can have the relationship and eventually the supervising producer will read your script. But if the script isn't good, if the script isn't ready, you know, you only have one chance at making that first impression. So, yeah. Yeah, keep writing. Okay, I'm very excited about this musical coming up. I want to mention the composers, Gwendolyn Sanford and Brandon Jay, and the director, who's Kristen Hange. And Gwendolyn and Brandon write all the music for Orange is the New Black, and they did Weeds. Wow. They haven't written a musical before, but they're doing a great job. And the director is Kristen Hange, who directed Rock of Ages on Broadway. Wow. So it's a great... A-list... Collaborators. A-list collaborators, and then there's me. And it opens, previews begin June 8th at the Fifth Avenue Theater in Seattle. And I hear Seattle's fantastic to go to in the summer. Oh, it really is. It re- yes. actually As really... somebody who broadcasts Mariner Baseball for five years, yeah, Seattle in the summer is gorgeous. So the show opens June 15th. So previews are from the 8th to the 14th. It opens on the 15th and it runs till July 2nd. And Fifth Avenue is spelled with a numeral, not spelled out. Okay. When do you go up and begin rehearsals? We start rehearsals here May 1st, and then we move up to Seattle May 10th. Wow. So it's, I'm so excited. And I really hope whoever is listening will think that that's going to be a fun road trip. No, I'm sure it will. And I'm going to come up and see it. Are you really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to come up and see it. All right, you guys heard it. And then I'll see it again when it's on Broadway. Yeah, exactly. Because that's hopefully the next step, right? there's some discussion about it. It's all going to depend on what happens and who sees this production and wants to do something in the future. My concern about going to New York is they hate L.A. people and they don't like these movie adaptations. And my fear about New York is that they'll kill it. We may tour, but if it if we have New York producers doing it, I'll get over that. Well, and the other thing, too, that I found is if a show opens out of town and does really well regionally, then it comes to New York kind of bulletproof. Right. I mean, in a way, Wicked was very similar. Winnie Holtzman, who right. wrote the book, is an L.A. writer. She wrote My So-Called Life and a lot of other things. Right. And that one did okay, didn't it? it I'm not did. the only one who remembers Wicked, right? No, yeah. no. Another uh, platonic friend story. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, so again, that is at the 5th Avenue Theater in Seattle. Previews begin June 8th. It opens June 15th. And it closes the 2nd of July. Is it still called Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion? Or Yes, it yes. is with the words, the musical after it. Fantastic. Robin, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. You're a wonderful interviewer. Thank you. Well, I'm certainly not going to edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> Back with more after this. And time after time You'll hear me say time after time. See, I can't really sing it without an orchestra. Thank you very much to Robin Schiff. Hey, it really was a good show this week. 
Also, thanks to Adam Butler, Susie Meister-Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wilford, and Randy Thomas. See you next week. Bye-bye. Hollywood and Levine. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.